Welcome to The Sugar Science. My name is Monica Wesley. I'm your host today, and uh, we are the home for curated conversations with scientists about type 1 diabetes. My guest today is Adebola Giwa. He is a pediatric endocrinologist at Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital, uh, Children's Center, and he's also an associate medical director at Descendus, where they are looking um, to develop drugs that, uh, for those who are growth hormone deficient, also for parathyroid drugs and some drugs that specifically help uh, those patients with achondroplasia. So welcome, Adebola. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be on the, on the show with you. Thank you. Um, and I just wanted to see, Paul, could you just sort of walk us through your background, your scientific background, how you got interested in type 1 diabetes and, you know, what it is you're doing now? Okay, yeah, sure. No problem. Well, uh, a little bit about me. Hi, mm -hmm. my name's uh, Dr. Debula Giwa. I'm uh, originally from Brooklyn, New York. I did my undergrad at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, my pediatric residency at the University of Chicago, and then I did my pediatric endocrinology fellowship at Johns Hopkins, where I currently work. Uh, in terms of how I initially got interested in type 1 diabetes, um, I guess you can say I, I initially developed my, my sweet tooth. <laughs> I um, actually, in college, um, while I was in college, well, I knew I wanted to be a doctor for a very long time since like the seventh grade. And when I got to college, I was looking for opportunities to be involved in as many medically related things as possible. And at Notre Dame, we had an opportunity to volunteer at a diabetes camp. So we, I volunteered to work at Camp Sweeney, which is a camp for kids with diabetes in, in Texas. And it was, I was there for about two and a half, two and a half months. And as a camp counselor, this was an overnight camp. Yeah. And uh, as a, where the kids would stay in like for three, three week sessions and like a, a one, two week session. And while there as a counselor, we wanted to make sure that the kids you know, didn't have to be stressed so much about managing their own diabetes. So as a counselor, every day we would check their ketones every morning. We would help them check their blood sugars. We would draw up their insulin for, you know, the dozens of camp <laughs> of campers each day, help them count their carbs. Yeah. If they were high or low during the day, we would check their blood sugar and give them insulin or give them juice or water as appropriate. So that was my my first real big one of my first big jumps into the, the medical field. Yeah. And it was then that I really developed a, a love for working with people with diabetes, kind of seeing what the kids were going through. A lot of times people with diabetes, they may be the only person in their school, if not maybe one or two. So a lot of times they don't feel they, they feel a little bit alone with their condition. But when you go to diabetes camp, everybody has diabetes. Yeah. So it becomes a norm. It actually became the norm for us counselors as well, because we also had to follow a diabetes regimen. So actually on my days off, um, if I was hanging out with friends and we went out to eat, I'd feel weird about not counting my carbs. Or <laughs> <laughs> if I was going to jump into a pool, I'm just like, wait, do I have a pump? Where? Let me try to took it off. Um, <laughs> no, that's but, fantastic. You're really immersed into the whole, and it is a world. It's a world within itself. 
Yeah, definitely. And then being able to kind of help the kids cope with their condition and just kind of normalize things, I found very rewarding. And then after that, I went off to medical school and I, I also fell in love with endocrinology, kind of with about due to the way that I think. Uh, endocrinology um, involves a lot of algorithms and pathways and I kind of have like semi-photographic memory. So it works really well with the way that I think. Yes, um, that does. <laughs> so got, because it turns out that immunology is one of the, you know, it's the most, one of the most complicated, I think it's right there with neuroscience, one of the most complicated uh, fields of study that there is. Yeah, a lot of times with endocrinology, people tend to either love it or hate it. They're just like, there are too many hormones and labs involved. <laughs> just consult the endocrinologist and just <laughs> let them figure it out. <laughs> so at, at Pittsburgh, um, right within my first year of medical school, I got involved doing diabetes research there. I was doing more clinical research looking at whether or not um, people overweight type one diabetics were at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And mm -hmm. I had a lot of great mentors um, over there, including Dr. Dr. Becker. And, and, you know, from there, I just, it, it was just, it was just a path. And then I, I did residency in Chicago, again, loved endocrinology, came to Hopkins. And in my second year at Hopkins, I met Dr. Donner, who is the uh, director of the Diabetes Center for, for Adults. Mm -hmm. um, I was interested in research. So I got involved in a project with him, um, working with a group looking at stem cell implants for people with type 1 diabetes to possibly regrow islet cells. But he also mentioned to me a project he was working on with uh, Dr. Hamad as well, mm -hmm. looking at this new X cell. And even though people usually just kind of stick to one project, <laughs> one research project at a time, I said to myself, I said, this right here sounds groundbreaking. This is something I want to be involved in. And um, that's, that's when I got involved. And yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like you have just been absolutely on the go buttons for, for a long time here. Your career is very full. And um, I think it's so interesting that you have the heart to treat uh, pediatric uh, endocrinology, you know, kids with type one and other endocrinology um, issues, but also the brains to apply to the research. Um, it's rare and it's, I think it's so exciting that you are involved with Dr. Hamad. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the sort of the path to the Excel? I mean, how did it all kind of, you know, happen and, and the story? Okay, sure. So, hmm. When it comes to immunology, there, there's two, there are a few divisions in terms of the types of cells that are present. Um, you have your uh, innate immune system, you have your adaptive immune system, and your adaptive immune system is a big part of your immune system that attacks viruses and anything that's foreign. It recognizes it and it sends out signals to all the other cells that this is what's foreign, this is a danger, we need to attack it. The two big major cells of the adaptive immune system are the B cell and the T cell, and they kind of work together um, to fight off infections and anything that's bad in the body. And um, the, the X cell got discovered in Dr. Hamad's lab around 2011, 2012. 
I think um, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's certain tests and scans that we do to look at blood to help identify what's a B cell and a, and a T cell. Um, we call it flow cytometry. And certain things light up that show that this is a B cell. Certain things light up that show that this is a T cell. And you can kind of see it in this uh, four quadrant grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the top right quadrant, there was there'd always sometimes occasionally be a little splattering of something indicating that maybe something has a little bit something that took up the dye that's supposed to go for both B cells and T cells. Uh, but however, nobody had really studied what was happening over there. You know, first off, maybe not a lot of people are in immunology to even look at that. And then next off, when people would see that, they would think it was just artifact and think, oh, you know, maybe they're just dead cells that happen to take up both of the dye for B cells and T cells. Yeah, or maybe or it's, it's like just background or something. Exactly. Or maybe just a B cell and a T cell that are stuck together. Mm-hmm. Um, but we noticed... Um, while looking at people with type 1 diabetes that, first off, like that section, there's usually very few cells in there, but there was an increased number of those cells consistently in people with type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. It started to be like a signature. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then with further research, we saw that actually those cells were not dead cells. They were not artifacts. They weren't just being a t- T cell that were going out on a date together and couldn't, <laughs> couldn't separate themselves. Um, so we did a number of tests and we proved um, by actually in a number of different ways, such as looking at the actual DNA that's involved in those cells, yeah. um, that they had characteristics of both B cells and T cells. And looking at one individual cell, we saw that it was not dead. We saw that it wasn't stuck together. It was an individual cell that had characteristics of both a B cell and a T cell. And that was extremely new and novel. No one had ever imagined there'd be a cell that has both the receptors of a B cell and a T cell. Yeah, it was very, I mean, as I said, I think the other day when we spoke briefly that uh, it's, it's, it's a re- you know, rewriting the textbook, really. Exactly, exactly. Um, um, actually funny enough uh, I was talking with the lab the other day and you know that's something that was actually one of the comments of the people that had reviewed our our paper that got published in cell a year or two ago but we went on Wikipedia and if you look up lymphocyte on Wikipedia Excel has now been added uh, (laughs) excellent to to the types of lymphocytes perfect (laughs) Yes, making progress. Well, oftentimes when, you know, advances are made in science, some, there, there are going to be, um, you know, people that are surprised by this and almost, you know, sort of fight back against it because it is novel. It's, and it flies in the face of the known knowledge. But I think it's, um, so, but Dr. Hamad and your whole group pushed ahead uh, with more and more um, discerning science and more experiments. And then, Recently, you guys came out with another paper, this, the one in J Immunology, uh, May 2020, right in the slap middle of COVID there, you were still able to publish something, so kudos. Um, and that was entitled, A Newly Discovered Dual Expressor Lymphocyte that Clonally Expanded in uh, T1D, Type 1 Diabetes Patients, Secretes a Public Antibody that Recognizes Public TCR in T1D. So can you talk a little bit about that paper? What, uh, you know, just sort of um, give us a thumbnail sketch. 
Don't ask. Yes. So I already kind of told you a little bit about the X sound, what makes it unique, mm -hmm. um, and that it, it um, has the receptacle, both the B cell and T cell, um, and they're significantly elevated in people in, people with type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, with more research, we were trying to figure out why it was significantly elevated in people with type one diabetes, and if it had anything to do with the development of the condition. So what we found was um, on the B cell receptor of the X cell, it looks like on the CDR3 region, mm. which is the antigen binding region. So it's the mm. part of the receptor that recognizes what's foreign and what's not. It looks like that part of the cell actually imitates insulin. Mm. And moreover, it's about 10,000 times more potent than native insulin in stimulating diabetogenic T cells to be activated and eventually go on to uh, attack um, the insulin producing cells. Yeah. So what that means is that this cell, part of the receptor, activates the immune system to then go, it activates the aberrant cells in your immune system that then go on to cause diabetes. Yeah. So we think that this cell could be the activator of the eventual development of type 1 diabetes because though we know that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition, nobody knows exactly what causes it. You right. can develop diabetes anywhere between the ages of 1 and 90. And some people get it when they're, you know, regular day in spring when you're one years old, uh, or you could be 12 or 13, and then in the middle of the winter, you just all of a sudden develop type 1 diabetes. But it could be that for some reason, this cell is the thing that gets activated that eventually causes people to then go on to develop type 1 diabetes. So right now, our research is primarily concentrated on finding the characteristics of this cell that make it unique so we can yeah. potentially target this cell to possibly attack it and maybe prevent people from developing type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Um, or even it is possible that this cell could also be one of the earliest biomarkers indicating um, who's going to get diabetes and who is not. Because yeah. right now, we don't really screen for type 1 diabetes because even if you're positive for just one antibody, there's only about a 10, 15% chance you're going to develop type 1 diabetes in the next five to 10 years. Right. Um, so we screened somebody that had antibodies and we really wouldn't be able to do anything because we can't be sure that they're going to get diabetes. But if somebody has antibodies or if somebody has significantly elevated levels of this specific type of X cell, then that could be a sign that someone's definitely going to get diabetes. And then we can then possibly initiate some sort of immunotherapy um, in that group of people. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about um, that you have a you have a partnership going with TrialNet, and that's been quite helpful. Can you um, explain a little bit about what's going on there? Yes, sure, I'd love to. Um, you know, luckily I was able to meet some of the people that work and you know, the the leaders of TrialNet at a conference. And as I was saying before, if you have just one antibody, you know, five ten percent chance that you're going to get. Um, diabetes in the next coming years. But if you have two or three, there's almost like a 90% chance slash higher that you'll eventually get diabetes. So yeah. for those who don't know, yeah. 
Um, for those who don't know, TrialNet is a group of people that are trying very hard to figure out what's going on with diabetes. So what they do is they collect blood samples of people who, ha who have diabetes as well as their siblings. Um, for anybody in the general population, the chance of them developing type 1 diabetes is about 0.4%. Mm -hmm. But if you have a first degree relative, that increases tenfold to around 4 to 7%. So by getting the blood samples of relatives for people with diabetes, people who have a higher chance of getting it, they can look at their blood before they develop diabetes and see what changes in their blood by getting samples every six months to a year um, to when they uh, eventually develop type one diabetes. Um, and, and so so you can isolate, or basically you could go hunting for these X cells. Correct. Uh, so and how easy is that? I mean, because they're a pretty uh, low percentage of the population, even in those who go on to become type 1, correct? That's correct. So um, the X cells present in all people, um, but they are different in the people who have type 1 diabetes in that uh, the CDR3 region of their B cell receptor, that's different mm -hmm. on the X cell than it is in other people. And they're small, they are found in very small populations. So of all the lymphocytes you have in your body, for people who do not have type one diabetes, they only make up about half of a percent. Mm -hmm. um, however, for people who have type one diabetes, it can be one to, you know, just anecdotally around one to 3% of all their lymphocytes. So it's a very small population. So what do you have to do just sort of, you know, um, from a clinical standpoint, when you do a blood draw, say from like a two-year-old, do you have to take a lot of blood in order to be able to really know you, you caught it, you know, caught the, uh, the X cells to be able to examine them? Um, that's a really good question. That's what we were doing right now in the lab. Um, we're trying to make a test that can specifically look for that, ideally that CDR3 region mm. um, of the B cell and the X cells. So we're not exactly sure how much blood you'll need to take. Yeah. Um, but right now it looks like we, we do see it in the peripheral blood. So we don't have to like go fishing in lymph nodes or organs or things like that. But, um, you know, we'll use like PCR. So I, no, we won't need to take a lot of blood, usually just, you know, just the same amount that you would do for most other blood tests that people would take to look for any other condition. Yeah, just like a two, a vial or something, it doesn't need to be more, even though they are rare. Um, and you just sort of PCR, whatever you find in the, in the white blood cells. That sounds, Correct. and so what about, um, so it seems very scalable, I guess is the question I was sort of getting to. And then what about, um, are you guys looking at X cells in other autoimmune conditions? And if so, or have you seen anything of interest? Um, that's a really, you're asking all the <laughs> awesome questions. I'm not going to have to sign you up to <laughs> intern at a lab or something. Oh no, <laughs> I can't go back in the lab. I've got TSF to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'll let you off this time. This time only. <laughs> um, so yes, you know, that's something very interesting because if it's this cell that seems to have a, a high affinity of activating aberrant um, immune cells in the body, 
for mm-hmm. type 1 diabetes, I mean, there's a chance that this could also, a similar mechanism could be seen in, in other conditions. So right now we're actually looking at it in other conditions, including um, thyroid dysfunction. So people with hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, AKA Graves disease, um, MS and lupus. Yeah. That's interesting because a lot of uh, family members of those with type one diabetes often have um, thyroid issues. So yeah, it's just a very interesting realm to me. Um, and I just think, you know, I'm wondering, so you have, um, are, have you been able to get back into the laboratory? Yes, you know, Corona's been quite crazy for us. Yeah. Um, so there was a, a number of months where we couldn't really get back into the lab, but our group is very dedicated. So even during Corona, um, we would have pretty much daily meetings on Zoom for a few hours each day, um, going over literature that we found, going over um, other things to see what data do we have that we can work on in the interim and then working on getting publications. So, we, so at least what we do have, we can get out there to the public. So, yeah. you know, we even wanted to work on weekends too, so. That's great. <laughs> Well, you did publish during COVID, so that's very impressive. And I just, I just also want to shout out to the fact that um, we we spoke a little bit offline that you know you were you have this role where as a clinician you really can, um, and as a scientist you have your feet in both worlds, and you can act as a conduit basically to to connect patients with. Um, research. And, you know, we know TrialNet is going on and those studies are available. And I think there's been a lot more understanding by the general public um, that these, these patient or these um, clinical trials are available. But what would you, um, you know, say in terms of the physician's role in that realm? I mean, you know, in terms of what you've been able to do and what encouraging other physicians or clinicians to, to um, connect to science? Yes, uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. And um, I think our lab is very good at balancing that because sometimes um, some bench research laboratories, they have, you have a lot of dedicated people who look into a certain disease pathology mm-hmm. and do what they can to find as much information about it as possible. But sometimes um, unless you get regular exposure to the people that actually have the condition, you know, um, it's not always easy to, it's kind of easy to sometimes lose sight of the, of the goal to focus on the science and kind of lose a little bit of sight of the, the goal of helping people. And, um, I was, I was uniquely positioned for what I do right now, because as I mentioned, the study had been started in about 2010, 2011, working with Dr. Donner, who works with adult patients. Um, but Dr. Donner's uh, you know, very busy, and you know we're still getting the study off the ground. So when I joined in 2017, they had recruited maybe around 40 to 50 participants. Mm-hmm. Um, but then me, as a pediatric endocrinologist, uh, we were able to really, in addition to having recruiting participants that have had diabetes for a number of years and decades, you know, people that had been diagnosed for just a day or two. Mm-hmm. So um, the majority of people 
develop diabetes between the ages of 10 and 14. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's right, right up my alley <laughs> yeah. as a, as a pedendo. And part of the talk, so I would frequently on a regular basis, you know, diagnose people with type one diabetes and we would have our somewhat standardized, you have diabetes talk with our participants. And part of the talk that we have, we, we have to be sure to let the family know that there's currently no cure for type one diabetes. Um, but after I joined the lab, I was then able to give just a little, little bit of hope for that because that can be very disheartening and very frequently most families, not all would have a little bit of a breakdown and cry with the new diagnosis. Yeah, um, it is. It's a, it's a game changer. It's a life changer for the whole family, as you mentioned. Yeah. And, you know, I, we have to be very careful about how we discuss it with participants because, you know, this study is still in the works. I'm not saying it's very promising, but it's, uh, we haven't cured anything yet. <laughs> so, yeah. I know. Uh, I just, it's true. I think there, there has to be, you know, I mean, physicians are trained to have this training though. And I think particularly pediatrics, physician or focused physicians are very sensitive to their patients, but you're right. You don't want to give false promises, but at the same time, it does give people a sense of, Hey, you know what? Maybe even if it isn't a cure, it could just help um, the understanding of the disease along the way. And I just, I just think that it's great that you have your feet in both worlds and you can, and you're still accessing um, patients and, and can, and can give people the information, what they do with it is their own you know, thing, but I think it is fantastic to have, you know, have a scientist really on the front lines with interfacing with patients. Exactly. Because usually the diagnosing process is usually a two to three day admission. So I don't usually bring it up on the first day because there's always a lot to, to take in on the first day. But then on the second or third day, while I'm talking with them, if they happen to ask, you know, like, hey, you know, is there any, anything we can do? Is there any research out there? You know, I'm happy to talk about our project and, you know, let them know that we have this promising research that, you know, possibly could lead us to a way to possibly prevent people from getting diabetes. So it probably, you know, won't cure their child at the moment. They, it could possibly help other people yeah. not get diabetes and go through what you're going through right now. And usually that's more than enough for the parents to jump on, jump on board. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a great, um, it's a great offering for people. And so from there, I guess I would say, you know, what's once, um, what's next for your, for the lab? I mean, I know some things are proprietary, but what, what else is, what's ahead for you guys or big picture, if you can share. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily we've been still been able to work during COVID and, you know, over the last few years that I've been with the lab, we've been able to recruit um, almost uh, triple uh, how many people we've recruited. We're up to like more than 150 um, different people just for our study. We've had to adjust our IRB. So with that, we're getting closer and closer. So what we're mostly focusing on right now that we have more samples to work with is we want to find the best tests to characterize this um, X cell so we can easily screen it 
in people, you know, as you're asking how much blood will we need, mm -hmm. you know, find the best test to screen it in people so we can find who has it. Yeah. Um, and right now we've worked with TrialNet and they've agreed to give us some samples as well of people, for example, who they know, people who've gone on to develop type 1 diabetes. So we have the blood of people who, the blood of people who eventually developed diabetes before they actually had diabetes. Oh, great. So it would be very interesting to see is the XL present in these people's blood before they actually develop type 1 diabetes? Mm -hmm. Or is it at a lower level? Does it gradually increase as the diabetes develops? Yeah. Um, so by doing that, we can, it would help us determine if this cell could also be used as a biomarker to see who's going to develop diabetes. If we see that, oh, it's significantly elevated way before they have diabetes, for everybody that eventually develops diabetes versus in the blood of people who are at risk, but never develop diabetes. And maybe the yeah. XL isn't even present in those people's blood. That will be very important to really discern like, you know, what is its role? I mean, you know, what it, whether it's there or not, when it appears. And then from there, I guess, to really understand what it's doing. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is fascinating. Well, I mean, is there anything else you'd like to offer up to some young scientists or young MD PhDs or young MD scientists um, during this sort of crazy time of, of the pandemic? Um, Words of yes. wisdom? Yeah. Um, I want to say never be afraid to think out of the box. Um, you know, before you were talking about how some people are a bit hesitant to accept new dogma as a possibility. Yes. Um, and, you know, we've encountered a bit of that <laughs> on, our, <laughs> on our way up. Um, while I was at Pittsburgh working with my mentor, Dr. Libman, who is an amazing woman, um, I remember we were talking about the advent of the CGM and the pump, and we were saying, yeah. And I said, you know, if you have a CGM and a pump, why can't we just make them talk to each other? Mm -hmm. And she's just like, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how long that'll take or if it'll ever happen, but mm -hmm. we'll keep our fingers crossed. You know, at that time, it didn't seem very likely. But I mean, right now, closed loop is almost standard of care. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, Dream big. I wanna, <laughs> exactly. I want to tell those people out there, um, if you have an idea, don't be afraid to follow your, your dream, follow that idea. If you have the data to back it up, it doesn't really matter what other people say. The data speaks for itself. And, yeah. you know, Dr. Hamad had listened to all those people who said like, uh, no, there's no such thing. Give it up. You know, we wouldn't have the research that we have now. And we, you know, now have pretty much irrefutable evidence that this cell exists, though people didn't believe it back mm -hmm. then. And who knows where our new discoveries will take us. So yeah. if you have an idea, you know, keep it, run with it. If everybody around you doesn't believe you, at least keep it in your, in your back pocket. So maybe when you have your own lab, and your own resources, you can look it up and you could, you know, make the next big discovery in science and possibly change the lives of a lot of people out there for the better. Right. Totally agree. And I found just talking to you, you're such an inspiration um, just in the way you approach medicine and science. Um, very inspirational and you're very uh, easy to talk to, very clear in, when you're talking. I can tell, I'm sure you do some teaching because it comes across <laughs> really well. 
Um, and I think it's yeah. a great message to young scientists who haven't decided whether or not they're going to study type one or what the immunology or whatever they're going to do that just to be open to it and think outside the box and, um, you know, don't be afraid to keep going with your data. Um, because I think that you do have to be quite brave in the face of, um, you know, of some of the, the pushback. So I think all that, all that um, wisdom that you shared was just spot on. Um, but so thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adebola. I really appreciated uh, you taking the time to talk to us out of your busy schedule and wish you all the best. We'll be watching very closely um, about, uh, you know, to follow the, the progress of the laboratory. I think some great, uh, some great things are coming. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been an, an absolute pleasure being on the show with you. Great. Thank you. are doing great things. Thank you. We'll talk in the future again.